0: All right, um, I'm going to call Jay Lutter on up today, and he is going to read our passage for us. We're in Acts chapter 17. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word.
1: Acts 17, 16 to 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them.
0: Be seated. Thank you, Jay. All right. Well, today our theme is God wants to be found. Uh, As a church, we have been working through the book of Acts. Uh, We started back in January and we are now in chapter 17. And I've been looking forward to preaching this particular passage all year. Uh, I'm stoked that we finally made it to Paul's famous sermon in the Areopagus of Athens, and so I'm excited. As a quick recap, though, Paul is on his second missionary journey. He has received a vision of a Macedonian man begging him to come and help them in Macedonia. So Paul and company travel to Macedonia and end up in Philippi. In Philippi, Paul and Silas preach Jesus and through a set of circumstances are beaten and then thrown into prison and they get released uh, but are forced out of that town and so then they flee to Thessalonica and in Thessalonica, again, they're hunted down by the same people, uh, rioting and a mob uh, ensues and uh, so they have to flee again and they flee to Berea for a while and that same mob from Thessalonica comes to Berea and they chases them out of town again And cool thing is, though, people are saved in each and every one of those situations. A church is planted in each of those towns. And what man meant for evil, God turned for good and saved people and brought churches into existence. And so um, Paul, now he's fled to Athens and he's waiting there for his friends Silas and Timothy to join him and arrive. And that's where we pick up the story. And so here we go. Paul, uh, the first point is Paul preached in the streets. Chapter 17, verse 16 we just heard it read, but I just want to read it again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, paul he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come and join him, while he's waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in a synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for. You bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Interesting. Okay, so Paul spent his time in Athens waiting for his friends, but instead of hiding out, relaxing, taking vacation, or lying low, he began going through the town and learning what he could of the place where he was at. He walked through the markets and down the stone streets with columns and arches and temples and altars all around him. It was a beautiful city. And Luke describes Paul and how he responded. He wrote that Paul's spirit was exasperated, stirred, or provoked. And that at what was his spirit stirred at? At the fact that the city was full of idols. And that didn't sit well with Paul. He was full of love for God and love for people, and he couldn't stand to see people giving their lives to something as worthless as an idol. And he was upset with the fact that Satan had so blinded them and put them in bondage. And so what did he do about it? Well, he reasoned with the Jews and devout persons in the synagogues, number one. And so Paul did what he always did. He began with the Jews and and the Jewish proselytes in the synagogue. And he taught them from the Old Testament scriptures about the necessity of the Messiah to suffer and die and rise from the dead. We looked at that last week. And so he reasoned with those who happened to be in the marketplace as well, every day, even with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And so Paul was committed to spreading the gospel wherever he went, in big cities and by riversides, in the markets and in the prison cells. He was determined to share the gospel with as many people as he could and as many walks of life as he could find them. He was not intimidated by people or their pedigree. He was convinced that the gospel was for everyone everywhere. Paul preached to everyone: lowly slave girls and high-rolling philosophers and politicians. And so he preached in the synagogues, in the marketplaces, in the streets, in the homes, and wherever his feet took him. And you know, we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to know the whole scripture through and through to be able to share what has happened to us. We simply need to share the message that we know. The one that changed our lives. The message of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, which results in forgiveness of our sins and a relationship with God the Father. And like Paul, share it with those that we meet wherever we go. Well, what was the response of the people? Well, in this situation, uh, not too good. They said, He seems to be preaching foreign deities, right? And this is not a good assessment of what he was preaching. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But for now, take note of that accusation, right? He seems to be preaching foreign divinities. And then why was he accused of preaching foreign divinities, right? He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Remember, Jesus was a Jew and so was Paul. So they weren't from there, so it was foreign. Uh, The accusation had a, a hint of truth to it. And then they said, we want to know this new teaching that you are presenting, you are bringing strange things to our ears. We wish to know the meaning of these things. And saying all this, they took hold of him and led him to the Areopagus. In verse 19 and 20. Were, were these just curious people wanting uh, to hear some exotic new story? Were they just kind of confused? Were they really interested in Paul's message? What was the motivation for bringing him to the Areopagus? All right. Well, Luke puts a little parenthet- parenthetical statement in here, and it's actually more than a parenthesis. It's, it's an incredibly important information for interpreting the story and for why Paul was brought there and for all that Paul said to them. So it says that the Athenians and the foreigners would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. For some, this is a description of a heavenly job right? You mean I get to sit all day and listen to people tell me crazy new things? Woohoo! Sounds great to some, right? I see some heads mnobbing. Uh Others, this is a description of a hellish job. You mean I have to sit all day and just listen to people tell me new crazy things? Don't I get enough of that watching the nightly news? It wasn't that simple, so let me explain. Some of you have heard the phrase, if it's new, it ain't true, and if it's true, it ain't new. Actually, raise your hand if you've, if you've heard that before. Okay, a few. Not many. Okay, well, if it, here's the saying. If it's new, it ain't true, and if it's true, it ain't new, okay? It's a controversial statement because, on the one hand, it does have merit because time-tested things are typically time-tested for a reason, right? They're, they're typically true. Uh, however, the saying is not always foolproof. As an example, I've heard this phrase often used regarding music in the church, right? If the song is new, it ain't true, And if the song is true, well, then it ain't new. It's been around forever, right? But that's not necessarily a biblical way of looking at music because it was God himself who said, sing to me a new song in Psalm 33. And it was God who puts a new song in my mouth, Psalm 40, verse 3. And in Revelation 5, 9, we find that myriads of people in heaven are singing a new song unto the Lord God. So some songs can be true, uh, some new songs can be true, I mean, we just can't write them off because they're new things, all right? But I digress. Okay, so back to the story. Uh, back in Roman days, the religious polytheistic or many-many-god-worshiping, animistic worldview in that day held to the same assumption. If it's new, then it ain't true. And the older religions, the gods and goddesses who had been around and worshiped for decades and centuries, were considered to be true because they had stood the test of time, in their culture at least. Generations of people had worshipped these gods and goddesses. Their economies and societies were were built around the appeasement and worship of these gods, and their temples were built in honor of them. And if something new came along, and it could jeopardize their religious way of life and their economy and their social structure, well, then that wasn't good, right? If it was new, it wasn't true. Additionally, it was more than frowned upon for someone to bring a new religion or a foreign god into the Roman mix. It was actually against Roman law, and we talked about that last week, that the Roman emperor's decree had forbid anyone from uh, foretelling a new deity or king would overtake the current king or deity, right? And so uh, the Romans knew that uh, religion is a great source of contention, and they were careful what deities were introduced and what ones were not. And so the Athenians, especially the enlightened ones, the educated ones who sat in the Areopagus were the guardians of truth. They were the ones who heard the descriptions of foreign deities and they were the ones who determined whether something uh, that was presented as new lined up with what was true or what was old. And they were the judges and jury in all things new and true, religious and social, cultural and economic. And so these were more than curious dopes who sat around all day inventing new things to talk about while eating grapes and playing Candy Crush on their phones. They were the ones who were entrusted with protecting the precious religious ecosystem of that region. Very important people. Very powerful people. And so when the philosophers began saying he is preaching foreign divinities, And could we know this new teaching that you are proclaiming, and what does it mean? They were really putting Paul on trial. And this is why they took hold of Paul, and they brought him to the Areopagus. He was brought there in order to defend himself and what he was saying. Was he breaking Roman law? Was he teaching something new? Was he introducing a foreign deity? If it's new, it ain't true, and so the jury was out. And Paul was in a pickle because, in a sense, the message of Jesus was fairly new, right? He had only died and risen a few decades ago. And so the gospel was, in a sense, new, right? And he was in Gentile territory, far from Jerusalem, and Jesus had been a Jew, and so this was a foreign divinity, according to that culture, right? And so how could uh, Paul possibly defend himself in this situation? They had him. There he was, forced into the middle of the Areopagus, standing before the defenders of truth, the scrutinizers of his every word and move, and the ones who would determine his fate. And he wasn't afraid at all. I find that so fascinating wasn't afraid at all. In fact, he fearlessly articulates an almost indisputable defense while at the same time presenting the truth concerning God and his plan of salvation. And I think Paul's speech is brilliant and I've been excited to share this with you this whole time. And this is why, when we look at this passage, this is why it's important to know God's word also important. It's also important and it's vital to be a student of culture as well. You never know when God's going to present the opportunity for us to bring the truth of God's word into the culture that we're in and people need to hear the truth. So let's see how Paul pulls the two together in this brilliant defense. So we're at our second point, verse 22 and following. I'm just going to read through. Just turn to your Bibles and be there because we're going to work through this like line by line, okay? So Paul preached in the Areopagus. He uses the wording and concepts of the polytheism or the many religious gods or the religion of many gods to present the one true God. He's, he, he does this in such a unique way. And we're going to pick up this speech apart line by line. So the introduction in verse 22, he says, I perceive that in every way you are religious. Now, this statement is both a compliment and a dig, all right? The word translated religious here can mean devout or pious, and so it could have been taken as a compliment, like they're very devoutly religious people, but the word can also mean superstitious. And so for those with ears to hear, Paul was actually calling them ridiculously superstitious people. So Paul led with this ambiguous term to throw them off balance a bit. Is he being respectful or is he being derogatory? Don't quite know. A bit of both. And Paul honored their position, yet called them out for being superstitiously idolatrous. So he says, I perceive that in every way you're religious, for I pass along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown god." And notice, Paul does not call the idols gods, but objects, for that was what they were. The things before which these educated elites, the defenders of truth, bowed down were simply carvings made from stone and wood and silver and gold. They were things, objects, creations of man, not deities, not gods. They were worthless, powerless, stupid, dumb unhearing and unanswering objects of their imagination. And so they were superstitious, so concerned that they worshiped just the right objects in just the right way, say just the right things, do just the right rituals, make just the right sacrifices, put in just the right amount of time, jump through all the right hoops. And they didn't want to miss anything, and so just in case, they said, well, let's put up an altar to uh, any God that we may have missed okay, to the unknown God. We don't want to get on his bad side because we neglected to do just the right things for him as well. And so we'll have an altar for him just in case where we can bring him food and sacrifices and that should, that should cover it all, right? And Paul, being a crafty, wise man, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, so full of grace and truth, love and compassion, he saw this opportunity and he snags it. He says, what you proclaim is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul wasn't bringing them something new, and he wasn't introducing something foreign. On both accounts, he was bringing something old and something that was local to them. They had an old altar sitting in their city, and he was bringing something old and something local to them. He he went on to describe this unknown God to them so that they could know him. And he went on to reveal this hidden God to them so they could see him. And he went on to speak for this unheard of God so they could hear him. And now his speech gets exciting because in the context, the saying is correct. If it's true, it's, it ain't new. If it's true, it ain't new because God ain't new, right? God ain't new. And this unknown God is not foreign because this unknown God is everywhere. And because he's everywhere, he's not far from any one of us. Because he's everywhere, he is also anywhere, including right here. And Paul begins to describe our amazing God. And he describes God's character through the things which God does. Verse 24 and 25, we begin with the creation of God. So, the God who made the world and everything in it. God is omnipotent or he's all-powerful he is the one and only all powerful God who made all things that exist he is omnipotent no other God and no other idol can claim to have created the world being Lord of heaven and earth so God is transcendent meaning he is unequaled the creator God is the supreme ruler over everything that exists because he made everything that exists and he created everything he is unrivaled and undefeated everything in heaven on earth submits to his rule and bows to his authority therefore he does not live in temples made by man God is uncontainable God made all of this everything we see and, and he rules it all since he is that big and that powerful how could he possibly live inside of a puny temple made by human hands which which he made the humans and he made the stones which would have created it anyway so how could he live inside of that And Paul's like, not hardly, nor is he served by human hands. And so God is independent, independent. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything that we could do for him. We don't need to bring him food or money or shower him with gifts. What could humans do for him that he cannot do for himself? He created everything that exists, so absolutely nothing. And as though he needed anything, he says, God is infinite, God is infinite. God made everything, which means that he existed before anything was made. And this means that he doesn't need anything that we could give him. He doesn't get hungry. He doesn't get thirsty. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't depend upon anything for his existence. He simply is. He's infinite, as if he needed anything. And Paul's kind of like, ha, not really. And he says, "...since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And so God is eternal. He, sa- he says all mankind, this encompasses whenever and wherever people live or lived or will live. God gives all of them, including you and me here today, life and breath and everything else we need and we want and we can use. It all comes from this creator God. And, be- and because all mankind, past, present, and future, are given life from him, this means that he is eternal. He never Was born and he never dies. He was before us and he will be after us. And on top of all that, God is omnipresent, meaning he is present everywhere. God gives all mankind life and breath and everything. He started with one man and continues to give life and breath and everything to everyone else who was born from this one man. But if he gives breath to every man, woman, and child on this planet, that means that he must know each and every person as well. And so he's everywhere present. And since he knows each and every person, it's only logical that he exists where each and every person lives. And he does. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. There's no place where God is not existent. And the creation of God reveals his omnipotence, his transcendence, his independence, his infiniteness, his eternality, his omnipresence, the fact that he is utterly uncontainable. And Paul continues by describing the character of God. He says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation determine the times and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And so God is also sovereign. Mankind does not choose where they are born or where they will live or how long they will live. The creator God determines all of that. And he sets the times and boundaries for each person's existence. We actually have no say in it. And God made each, every one of us, from every race and every tribe, no matter where we live on the planet. And so God is not confined to one piece of ground. He's not monopolized by any one people group. Because he created everyone, he places his claim upon all of us. Like it or not, we are subject to him. Believe it or not, we are answerable to him. But yet, this omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, sovereign, infinite, transcendent God, whom all of us should fear, determined all of these things in his sovereignty so that they would seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God is relational. And when I read that sentence, it's like we're this tiny little creature crawling around in the dark. But God placed us in strategic times in history and in strategic places on the planet so that we, each and every one of us, would perhaps, in all of our crawling and feeling around in the dark, find our way to him and find him. And God sovereignly determined when we would live and where we would live for this purpose. So we would seek him. And so we would feel our way to him or grope around in the darkness in order to find him. Now get that. God wants to be found. The problem is, as humans, we don't naturally grope around looking for him because we latch onto the first thing in the dark that we find. Once we attach to a a false God or a scientific solution or a dependable company or a drug of choice or whatever, we feel somewhat secure and then we cling to those things and we, we cease to look around. But many Just to cover all the bases, they tack on a bit of religion. We go to church just in case the unknown God to us is out there. And it's ironic because the only reason that God is unknown is because we don't naturally seek him. And even though all along it is he who gives all of us the very life and breath and everything we need to live. You see, God never forces anything upon us. This is incredibly wonderful and incredibly tragic. For God made us with a will to choose him, or to reject him, to love him, or to hate him. And in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward all of us, not wishing that any should perish in that darkness, right? But that we should reach repentance, that we should come to him. And this awesome God desires that none should perish. He wants all people to repent and to feel their way toward him and to find him. God wants to be found. And you know what this also means? It means that God is compassionate. Paul says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So God is loving. This independent, uncontainable, transcendent God stoops down and whispers in our ears, Come to me. I want to be found. I am right here. I love you. And God is, in, is lovingly accessible. The truth of God being near to each one of us is found in Psalm 145, 18. The psalmist says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And whether we, uh, we listen to him or not, whether we find him or not, or ignore him or pursue him, he loves us so much that in him we live and move and have our being, Paul says, So God is generous. He he allows us to live and to breathe and to move around and work and play and eat and drink and dance and sing and marry and bury and just be human. Even though we don't deserve it, God gives us all of this. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. This is a biblical theme. Paul was quoting a guy by the name of Epimenides from Crete with this line, but in doing so, Paul was harmonizing They're time-tested and true poets and sages with the time-tested and true word of God, right? The concept behind the quote, in him we live and move and have our being is also found in Job chapter 12, verse 10. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. It's also found in Daniel chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, when Daniel's talking to the king who's just seen an inscription on the wall and he says, Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart. You have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which do not see or hear. Think of all those people in Athens, same thing. And he says, Daniel says, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And so Paul quoted one of their own time-tested and true poets, harmonizing it with the truth of the Old Testament, and then he continues with another example from their tested and tried. If it's true, then it's not new sources. And he says, As even one of your poets, somehow feeling his way around in the dark and looking for this unknown God, said, For we are indeed his offspring. And this is a quote from Eratus's poem, Phenomena. And here's what Paul was getting at. Your own poet speaks truth old truth and this poet god is old truth from the ancient and eternal unknown god the truth that i'm telling you is not just old it's timeless let that settle in for a minute we are indeed his offspring we come from god your own poets assert and affirm this timeless truth and being then god's offspring there is something more about god that you must know and Paul continues, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image that uh, by art and imagination of man. In other words, God is holy. To put it more plainly, we cannot think that he is like anything that we can imagine. This God is holy, which means he's completely other. We cannot describe him. We cannot carve his likeness. We cannot manufacture his essence. We cannot paint his image. We cannot sculpt his presence. We cannot formulate his DNA. We cannot grasp his spirit. Because we are God's offspring and we live and breathe and have life, we cannot imagine that God is like us or anything like we can imagine him to be. He made us. We don't make him. He formed us. We do not form him. We conform to God's imagination. He does not conform to our imagination. His angels, the one who stand before his presence, are so awed by his holiness that they can only say one thing over and over and over again, and we sang saying it today, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And though we are God's offspring and he cannot be appeased and he cannot be be manipulated, cannot be contained, cannot be ignored, and he's super holy and he's beyond anything we can imagine, Paul continues, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. Thank goodness God is merciful. This creator God gave us a will all of our own and we can choose to seek him and find him or we can choose not to. And our ancestors chose to willfully ignore him and consequently we've been born into the ignorance of not knowing who God is. And in mercy God has overlooked humanity's ignorance of him up until now. Now this God is done overlooking our ignorance, Paul says. And this gets us to the command of God. Verse 30, he commands all people everywhere to repent. God is omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. God knows everything. And God knows every man, woman, and child, where and when they live, where and when they were born, where and when they will die. And because God is sovereign and he knows everything, he has the right to make a command. And because he's all-knowing, he will know whether that command is obeyed or not. God's command is undisputed. It's for all people. It's universal, meaning it's for everywhere. God's command is undeniable. It's to repent. And this all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, transcendent, uncontainable, infinite, sovereign, omnipresent God in love commands all people everywhere to repent to turn to him, to find him. God has overlooked our ignorance for a time. God will not overlook our ignorance forever. As one commentator put it, we can no longer have an altar to an unknown God because God has made himself known. And how did he do that? Through the person of Jesus. God wants us to find him and to know him and we do that through belief in Jesus. But God understands people because he made us. And so, Paul continues, he has fixed a day. He has fixed a day. God is gracious. God is gracious. In grace, God has given us what we don't deserve. He has given us time. God is allowing us time, time to repent and turn to him. And the message is going out. The message is going out. He is giving us time to hear about him, to find him, to come to him, so that we and he can be in a relationship together. He's ever so gracious. And Paul continues, he will judge the world in righteousness. You see, God is righteous. It is only right, it is only proper, that the thing which is created should honor and love the being which created it. It is only proper and right for the owner, the supreme ruler, the Lord of all, to be praised and worshiped in greatness. And if people do not love him and worship him for who he is, he has the right to judge them. In fact, it is the righteous thing to do so. Unfortunately, many fail to do so. For many people, he is still the unknown God. Thankfully, God is just. And because he is just, God will not judge us. No, God will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. This man will judge our response to God. In fact, this man... This human has the power to pardon us, to save us, to release us from the judgment of God. But how do we know that this man can actually help us? How do we know that we can actually come to know this unknown God? Well, because God has given us assurance. And of this, Paul continues, he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead. God is truthful. God proved his love and his grace and his desire to be known by us through raising this man from the dead, the one who will be our judge and our savior. And God provided his love to us and to this man by raising him from the thing that none of us can conquer, death. And how do we know that this man can help us? Well, because he rose from the dead. No one else has ever done that. How do we actually know that we can come to know this unknown God? Because he raised up this man from the dead. How do we know that we'll be pardoned and saved from God's judgment? Well, because he raised up this man from the dead to prove it. And though Paul did not mention his name, the truth of who God is, the nature of God himself, the eternal plan of God for our salvation, the only way in which we can find God is revealed in Jesus. He has given assurance or proof that Jesus is the man by raising him from the dead. And the writer of the book of Hebrews began his defense of the necessity of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the eternal plan of God with similar words. And what I find is interesting, the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish people. And Paul is speaking to Gentile people. And regardless of which audience it is, the message of salvation is the same and it's rooted in the timeless truth of who God is. Listen to Hebrews chapter one, verse one to three. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The time is now. By his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The, the, the language is reminiscent of what Paul is using here in Acts chapter 17, and, after, and in Paul, or this, the writer of Hebrews continues, after making purification for sin, he, this man, the appointed one, the one that God sent, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, right next to God. And also in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes to this Colossian church and he says, he, the man, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have the preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Powerful words. Paul's point in this passage, well, really God's point is this. God created all of us. Therefore, we are all his. He is the one who gives us life and breath. God created us so that we would seek him and love him and have a relationship with him. God wants to be found Unfortunately, even though we are God's offspring, we rejected him for images and advertisements and coins made of silver and gold, for statues and knickknacks and boats and cars and clothes and electronics, for businesses and powerful positions. Now, we don't bow down to carved images in our day and age, but all these material and immaterial things function as our gods today, the things we worship and give ourselves to. And in rejecting the Creator God, we got to the point where we could no longer grope around for him because we were bound up in sin. We were blinded by the shininess of our idols, deceived by Satan and captive to our sinful desires. And yet God patiently waited for us and overlooked our ignorance. But now God has sent out his command. Enough is enough. God wants us to repent and turn to him. And God is not fooling around. He has set a day. He's put the date on his calendar. It is set in stone. The date out of his calendar is the day of judgment. And why is the command sent out now? Why is it urgent now? Because God revealed himself and his eternal plan by sending Jesus to die and then raising him from the dead. And God is going to judge us by that man whom he has appointed, Jesus. And Paul is saying, that unknown God that you worship in front of that puny little altar, so ignorant and naive and that you didn't even try to name him, that is the God I'm proclaiming to you. He wants to be found through the person that he sent. He is awesome and amazing. He's powerful and gentle. He's everywhere and near. He's eternal and present. He's just and he's gracious. He's sovereign. He's loving. He is everything. You can't ignore him. You can't appease him. You can't trick him. You can't manipulate him. You can't undermine him. You can't run from him. So seek him. Fall down and worship him. Repent of the error of your idolatry and believe in him and follow the one whom he raised from the dead. He had a really good sermon. And when they heard of the resurrection, it says, there were two responses. Some Disbelieved, and some believed. Always only two responses to God's appeal. Only two responses to Jesus. Either you believe or you disbelieve. The dis- some disbelieved. Half of the disbelievers, they mocked. Meaning that they rejected the truth regarding the Creator God. They rejected the command for repentance. They rejected the pronouncement of judgment. They rejected the reality of the resurrection. So they disbelieved. But half of the disbelievers were polite, Right? We will hear you again about this, they said. Meaning that they were skeptical about the truth regarding the creator God. They were hesitant to obey the command to repent. They were doubtful of the pronouncement of judgment and they were unconvinced regarding the reality of the resurrection. Both groups were unbelieving. But uh, Luke, the author says, some believed and joined themselves to Paul. Meaning that they, both men and women, believed the truth about their creator, God. They obeyed the command to repent. They received the pronouncement of judgment and they accepted the reality of the resurrection and they were saved. So this speech by Paul presents us with a challenge and I believe both for us who believe and for anyone here who may not believe in Jesus. And here it is. God wants to be found. In fact, God's desire to be found is so intense that he commands us all to repent and turn to him through faith in the one man, his man, Jesus. And God commands us all to repent of making God into an image that we create. If you don't know him, he commands you to stop trying to fit him inside of a box. Stop believing that he only dwells inside a temple or a church building. Stop assuming that he sits like a genie in a lamp waiting, for you to, give, waiting to give you three riches if you just rub it the right way. God is way bigger than that. God is all the things that Paul described him as today. He is the creator of every one of us, the one who gives us life and breath and sustains that life and breath for each and every one of us each and every day. But he doesn't only do that for you and me and you and you and you, he does that for 7.9 billion people on the planet every single day. What incredible love. He is indescribable, uncontainable, untamable, infinite, eternal, transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, present, everywhere, sovereign, independent, holy, loving, gracious, kind, just, righteous, truthful, and most surprising of all, he's relational. God wants a relationship with us. Don't you think, after hearing all of that, after having this description of God, this revealing of who he is and how amazing he is, and that he wants to know you individually, that you wouldn't want to get to know him. Wouldn't it be the logical and appropriate thing to seek him? And once we've found him to love him and worship him, it only makes sense, right? And this great God said that the way in which we come to know him, the way in which we come into a relationship with him, is by simply believing that he lovingly sent Jesus to die For the salvation of mankind. And then we believe that he raised Jesus from the dead. Obeying God's command to repent of our strange and erroneous beliefs and conceptions of him and to believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the way that God opens to us the door of eternal life and salvation. It's through belief in the man, Jesus. And if you've never placed your faith in God's appointed Savior and righteous judge of all, do so today. Don't go to God's judgment without Jesus at your side. Please come and talk to me afterwards. Now, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, the next few thoughts are for you. All of us are saved by Jesus when we find him and put our trust in him. Unfortunately, I've spoken to many Christians in my life, people who are excited about him at first and they seek him for a time, but then they stopped seeking him. They got lazy, they got complacent, They thought well jesus has got me i'm saved i don't need to seek him anymore i don't need to work on my relationship with anymore because he promised that he would never let me go and i promised that i believed in him and that i loved him end of story right let me ask you a question that all of you married or unmarried will understand okay do you think my wife would be happy if i live my life with her with the attitude of eh she got me we are married i don't need to pursue her anymore I don't need to work on a relationship anymore because she promised that she would stay with me until death, and I promised her that I'd stay with her until I die. I said I loved her at the altar. Now, how many think that would go well? Yeah, probably not. It would be ludicrous. The work of a relationship with someone doesn't stop the minute that relationship starts. We continue to seek one another out. We continue to love one another. We continue to talk with one another. We continue to say, I love you, and follow it up with actions and displays of love. That's what a relationship is. But so many let their relationship with God slide. Reading God's word is replaced with seeking information on the internet. Trusting God's promises to protect and provide is replaced with the insurances and assurances of saving accounts and and retirement plans and scientific solutions. Praying to and pursuing God is replaced with amassing worldly comforts and conveniences. The grace which saved us and said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, is replaced with cheap grace that says, he's got me, now I can do whatever I want to do. But here's the deal. Jesus wants a relationship with us. But he has no interest in simply being our fire insurance, our get-out-of-hell free card. This is not what it's about. Jesus wants you, each and every day, all of you. Jesus wants to be the object of your affection and worship and adoration and awe and praise and love and motivation, for he deserves it. He, it is altogether fitting and proper that we worship the one who came from God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the one who saved us from our sins. And what is so cool about the creator God, the one who wants to be found, is that he made a way to be found For as Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Right? We see Jesus. We've seen this amazing God. And as we do that, day by day, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we are also looking unto God, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. For we are indeed his offspring since we have come into his family through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. What a blessed reality. What an amazing grace. Seek Jesus every day. Work on that relationship. He wants to be found. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Paul's words. They were directed at people who hadn't placed their faith in Jesus, who didn't know who Jesus was, who didn't even know who you are, God. And so for those who do not know you, God, I pray that they would turn their hearts to you, that they would hear Paul's message and look to you. And for those of us who've who've known you for a long time, but maybe sliding, God, we 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 repent. We want to have a deep relationship with you. You we know that you want to have it with us. You sent your son to do so. And so we just we just recommit ourselves to seeking you first, to loving you, to being in a relationship with you. God, you've, made, you've done so much for us. We wouldn't even be here if it weren't for you. And we're so, so grateful. We're so grateful for you sending Jesus so that we could have a way to be in a relationship with you, the God, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth. We shouldn't even have that, that that ability to come to you because you're so awesome and so holy and so amazing, and yet you've given us that privilege. And we humbly come to you and say, thank you. You're such a good God. We love you. Thank you for this time we could spend together being reminded of your greatness through your word. And I pray that we would go from here. In, in the, with that memory in the back of our heads all week long, that you are the uncontainable, sovereign, almighty God who stoops down and loves us and who gave us a way to be in a relationship with you. May we not take that for granted. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, why don't you stand for the benediction? I encourage you to stick around for coffee out in the foyer and get to know someone that you haven't seen before. Ask their names and find out where they're from. Let's fellowship together. And now receive this benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. Thank you. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful week.